Have you finished your personal statement yet? Now's the perfect time to get it professionally reviewed by a medical school HQ expert advisor. We have former directors of admissions, admissions officers, and the like on our small team of amazing people. They have the inside knowledge from reading thousands and thousands and thousands, tens, if not 100,000 personal statements going through the process and setting up the process for their whole committee. They know exactly what medical schools look for and the common red flags that can get your entire application thrown out. Take advantage of our flash sale right now, going through May 6th, up to 6,000 characters reviewed for just $150. That's a $75 discount on our regular price. Go to editmyps.com. Again, that's editmyps.com. The Premed Year, session number 542. Hello, and welcome to The Pre-Med Years, where we believe that collaboration, not competition, is key to your success. I'm your host, Dr. Ryan Gray, and in this podcast, we share with you stories, encouragement, and information that you need to know to help guide you on your path to becoming a physician. Welcome to The Pre-Med Years. Thank you so much for joining me today. I have an awesome guest, non-traditional. I love these non-traditional stories, and Gargana is going to share her story with us in one second. Before I jump in, though, I want to talk about the MCAT Minutes brought to you by Blueprint MCAT. If you are a busy, crazy, non-traditional student like Gargana here is today, then you should go to blueprintmcat.com, use their amazing study planner tool, which will help you plan out your MCAT prep. You can put in days that you know you're not going to be able to study and how much time per week you're going to have to study, and it will lay out the perfect study plan for you that is flexible as a non-traditional student. You, you'll you have the ability to move things around when life gets in the way. So go to blueprintmcat.com. Use their free amazing study planner tool today. All right, let's go and say hello to Gergana. Gergana, welcome to the pre-med years. Thanks for joining me. Thank you for having me. I um, I have been listening to this podcast since like before my application cycle, throughout my application cycle. So it feels really surreal to be on the other side of it. Yeah, I'm excited to chat with you. It sounds like you have an amazing journey to talk about and hopefully others can learn from. Let's start yeah. at the beginning. When did you first realize you wanted to be a physician? <laughs> it was not that long ago. Um, I think COVID <laughs> definitely spurred um, the, the inspiration for it. I actually got my EMT basic when I was in high school and fell in love with EMS. Yeah. I got why? My advanced why, EMT why did you, was, why did you be, get that certification and start doing that? Um, well, I grew up in a small rural town in New Hampshire okay. and I remember going by like the volunteer fire department and then having a sign for like looking for volunteer firefighters and volunteer EMTs. Mm-hmm. And I was like, Oh, I thought that was, like a, a career field where people don't volunteer. I mm-hmm. mean, there are a lot of career fields that people volunteer and do pro bono work, right? And so I was pretty interested and I Googled it and it's pretty easy to get your EMT basic. I mean, if you're working multiple jobs and have a family and a kid, right? It takes time, it takes money. Yeah. But in comparison to going to med school, um, there's it's fairly easy. And so I kind of researched it and I was like, I really like this, it seems fun. Um, I want to call myself an adrenaline junkie. <laughs> But I, I do like some of the adrenaline that goes into, you know, going to a 911 call. Yeah. And just really fell in love with it. Uh, a lot of rural areas in the U.S. have 
paramedic shortages. And so there are advanced EMT options. And I was like, I want to do IVs and IOs and give cool medications. And really for the longest time, I thought to myself, <laughs> why would anyone be a physician when I could be a paramedic <laughs> and be in the field? And I think that's what happened. Um, I just continued EMS like all throughout college. Every academic break, I was home, was taking shifts. And I just, I really loved it. There's a lot of instant gratification in yeah. EMS, right? You get get to a patient, you help them, and they get better. Yeah. Um, a lot of problem solving. I think being in the field, being away from the hospital setting, it's really unique. You have to be independent. So. Yeah. Was it, is there a little, uh, n- not to diagnose you with anything, uh, a lot of times <laughs> the, the, the potential thing, you, you talked about that instant gratification. Sometimes a little ADHD comes in handy of like, oh, I'm on this thing and they're gone and now I can jump to the next thing. Is there any part of that with EMT that you liked? Um, I think I just like that there was something new all the time. I mean, you stay in EMS long enough, you see a lot of the same things yeah. over and over again. Yeah. If I never have to do a lift assist again, it'd be okay. <laughs> but yeah. right, that's why we have a 911 system um, and it's part of the job. But I think just having something new and being in a new environment, you're always traveling, especially in rural EMS, you're going long distances. Yeah hospital can be up to an hour away. So. Yeah. You went to college. Yeah, you mentioned doing mm. your your kind of EMS stuff even during college. What did you go to college for? Computer science. <laughs> so I knew I was going to major in a hard science. Um, my family and I are originally from Bulgaria. So mm. Eastern European science parents co-signed loans with me, said, you're going to major in a hard science. And I was like, that's fair. Um, I dabbled a bit in chemistry and bio. I thought maybe I was going to be an engineer and didn't like those classes. My father said, take a programming class. It wasn't available during his time. And there was something about being able to do your, your programming lab in the bed of your dorm <laughs> versus organic chemistry, right? You're watching like the sunset as you're waiting for your reaction. <laughs> can't, to can't pipette in bed. Yeah. Can't pipette in bed. Um, and I really got into the med tech Sphere. So I was programming, um, did software development um, for like MRI data analysis. Um, I don't know if you've heard of MD Calc. Uh, they're yep. the smartphone application. I programmed for them uh, for a bit and really thought that was like where my career path was going to lead. I was going to be in med tech, you know, helping healthcare providers be better providers, helping them with their needs, reaching more patients, and then doing EMS on the side. I thought, you know, maybe one day I'll go to paramedic school because uh, EMS was like a very intense hobby. It's a huge part of my identity for a really long time. So then you graduate college. What yeah. what was that next step? <laughs> the next step was a quarter life crisis, right? There is a huge difference of being in a rig, <laughs> going to a 911 call, and then sitting at a computer uh, programming all day. And I was like, man, there, I mean, Programming is lucrative for a lot of reasons, right? The tech world is, is blowing up, as we know. Um, great job opportunities. Now we have telework <laughs> it's, it's kind of blowing up in the negative way these days with uh, well, all the firings. Well, that's true, actually. <laughs> yeah, this is true. But, I mean, the tech's not going anywhere. Yeah. So, I, uh, yeah, I had a bit of a, a quarter-life crisis. I finished college, had a few job offers, thought, do I really want to be a programmer? Um, didn't exactly have the financial means, like, hang around and figure out what I wanted to do with my life. And I knew a lot of military veterans. I knew I liked being in uniform. I liked the hierarchy, like that structure that I did well in that for the most part. Mm -hmm. Um, 
And so I said, you know what, I'm going to join the army for a few years until I figure out what I want to do. Um, hopefully get to do some travel, get to have some interesting jobs. And yeah, so I was in the army past five years, almost five okay. years. I got out this past March. Wow. And, and what did you do in the army? Did you take your EMS career into the army? Mm-mm. No, <laughs> I was a little burned out. I okay. was, I was a bit burned out. I think, um, it's something that most people I think figure out with age, right? If your job is your identity and it's all you think about and if it becomes a part of your personality, where do you de-stress, where do you decompress? And mm-hmm. me being like 19, 20, you know, up to 22, did not know how to balance my life very well. And so I was a bit burned out. Um, so I did combo. I was a 25 alpha. Okay. Um, communications, radios okay. and things like that. Yeah. So doing that, and then obviously at some point you had another mm-hmm. another life epiphany. crisis epiphany life cri- it's awakening all life yeah go from one crisis to the next that's all life is um yeah. at what point were you sitting around in the army going oh man like that whole ems thing was just the stepping stone to what i really need to do exactly um so i was stationed in south korea when COVID happened mm. and i got pulled up into a like COVID response unit but it was much more administrative Okay. So we maintained quarantine buildings, gate screening operations. And it was like, I could see the patient care right there. I could see the physicians and the medics right there. And I was so far away. Mm-hmm. And I think I had like just a mix of emotions of some of it guilt being that like, you know, I have this training, I have this experience. I'm not on the front line. Um, I don't think the jealousy is the right word, but like I, wanted to be there. Right? I wanted to be with those coworkers and in that field. Um, and so I was like, man, should I get out of the army and be a paramedic? <laughs> what I, you know, initially had thought, Yeah. but seeing a lot of the physicians and, you know, they're doing way more than just patient care. And at that time, I mean, a lot of paperwork, obviously, but there was a huge role in like mentoring and coaching and educating, not just right the public or patients, but medics and nurses and techs, and then working with us on the administrative side. And this cohesion that they provided and their leadership, mm-hmm. I was like, maybe being a physician is cool. <laughs> maybe that, that is something that you know I would want to do. And so I think around that time, I had gone to Spotify and looked at like, what is this med school process really about? Because you go on Reddit, right? You go on SDN and it's like, no, I'm no there's no way I'm being accepted to med school. Yeah. I found your podcast that way. Um, and it was, it gave me a lot of confidence, especially hearing, um, you know, applicants like now myself, right. Mm-hmm. That have made it into med school. Very inspiring. and thinking like, okay, I've done all these little careers. Mm-hmm. Um, I, it's easy to look at like my application or my resume and think like, She's all over the place. She doesn't know what she wants to do, but ultimately I figured it out. Yeah. And I think when you be turned 25, you know who you are a lot better <laughs> as an adult. And so, yeah, I think this is my la- last life crisis, hopefully. You know. It won't be. <laughs> and that's okay. <laughs> it's just, you just roll with sure. it. We're constantly evolving. It's fun. So it's, it's interesting, right? You look back on your career and you basically have ended up in a progression of what you started with, right? Starting in EMT mm-hmm. and now progressing to becoming a physician. So pre-hospital care, now potentially hospital care, obviously outpatient clinics and, and other stuff exist as a physician. If you 
could look back on your time as an EMT, do you think you missed some signals back then that you probably should have pursued this earlier? Um, I suppose there were some, right? Because I was pretty inspired by our medical directors um, that were managing, you know, multiple EMS agencies in a really, really rural setting in New England, um, working with med control, especially as an advanced EMT. But I think I was probably just too immature, honestly, at the time. Yeah. I didn't have that self-reflection. And I'm glad I didn't make that decision. I think it's absolutely incredible that there are a lot of, you know, 17, 18-year-olds, I mean, 12-year-olds that know, like, I want to be a physician, I want to be a doctor, I've had these life experiences. Mm-hmm. Um, I just wasn't there yet. And so, and I'm glad. I think, um, you know, military, I mean, any occupation has its ups and downs. I'm really glad that I completed my service and knew that I didn't want to do programming, <laughs> knew that I didn't want to do combo. Um, so it brought me to where I am now, at least. Yeah. So for many non-traditional students, especially those who are in the military as as active duty, getting those prereqs done can be challenging. What were those first steps for you to figure out what you needed to do to actually get to this point of applying? There's a lot of prereqs you have to do. And I was in a tough position too, because I um, my mom's a chemist. And so I thought, oh, I'll be a chemist like her. So I took half the chem sequence in undergrad. I took like a biology class. And so I thought, especially with like my GPA uh, not being so great, it's like maybe I need to do a formal post-bac. But if you have a lot of the prereqs completed, you don't actually qualify for a formal post-bac. And then I don't have enough prereqs done, I can't do an SMP. So more research, a lot of more Googling. And I was like, okay, there's a do-it-yourself post-bac. And at that time um, that I got more into the process and knew this is what I wanted to pursue, I knew I was getting stationed in Los Angeles for another 12-month assignment. And so I was looking at like community colleges in the area. And I ended up taking night classes uh, with UCLA Extension, actually, which was also just, it's nerve-wracking, especially when you do... (laughs) You're a non-traditional student, and then you have a non-traditional application cycle in terms of how you complete your prereqs, how you study for the MCAT. Mm-hmm. You know, I was active duty, that time working probably like over 50 hours a week. Am I doing the right thing? Yeah. Are med schools going to look at these classes and be like, well, I didn't apply to UCLA Extension. You drag your class into the shopping cart, and then you pay for it. Yeah. So. You know, is it competitive enough? You know, if I go to community college classes, are they going to accept those classes as prereqs? Yeah. So, so let me just add one clarifying point uh, onto your mm-hmm. your discussion about post-bac programs. And you, you had some prereqs done, so you didn't qualify for some post-bacs. They're, they're, for, for students listening, there are generally, for formal post-bac programs, there are generally two paths. There are career changer postbacks, which I'm assuming is what you mostly looked into based on mm-hmm. the language that you just used. And those career changer postbacks are truly for people who don't have the science prereqs. And you go and you take them all. And then there are academic enhancer postbacks for the people who took those prereqs and just didn't do well on them. And then they're, you're retaking a lot of those. So just to clarify as, as students are looking and the AAMC has a, uh, a post-bac database and you can, you can filter based on the type of program. So let's, let's add a timeline to this. So 
you started your post back at UCLA Extension when? Um, it was the summer, the first summer of COVID. First summer of COVID. And it was all online too, because the campuses were shut down. Okay. So back um, back in 2020. 2020, yeah. Okay. So summer of 2020, you started doing post back work at UCLA mm-hmm. Extension. And when you submitted your application in 2022. Okay. And uh, yeah. Did, did you finish all of your post-bac classes at that point or you still had a bunch that you needed to take? <laughs> no, I, so I finished the chem and the bio sequence. Okay. And at that point I was really researching schools to see what schools do I even like have the prereqs to, cause some of them are different, right? Some want biochem, um, some want physics with labs, some just physics and whatnot. So I was like, I know at that point knew how competitive the process was. It was like, I need to have a well-balanced school list. And I know that's one of the things that you talk often about on your podcast and in the books. Um, So I'd finished like the bio sequence, chem sequence, and then I got stationed. So it was a 12 month assignment. So a whole year of night classes. And I got stationed outside of Seattle. Okay. And my plan was August of like the application cycle to get out of the army. And I actually been approved to get out of the army and I really needed physics. Physics was holding me back on my school list. Okay. And at that time I got a really cool temporary duty assignment slash deployment in Germany. And I thought to myself, man, <laughs> do I get out of the army and not have a consistent income and take physics or, you know, do I hold off for this really incredible opportunity that would allow me to use my Bulgarian language um, and, continued my service in a meaningful way Yeah, with the idea of like, I'm still going to med school. Cause at that point I had taken the MCAT. Okay. Um, so and it was like, were you, let, let me, let me just clarify. Were you waiting to apply until you had your physics or did you understand no. that you could apply and then just take physics by the time you matriculate? That was the plan. Okay. I was going to get out. Cause at that point, I'm not sure if it was just a location I was living in or if it was, still some changes with around COVID, I could not find a night class with physics with lab. Yeah. Community colleges, four year to be a non-matriculating student. I have implied as a matriculating student to see if I could get a class and I could not find one with my work schedule. Okay. And so I was like, I knew I had to get out and do it concurrently with the application cycle. Okay. And at that time too, I was thinking, oh, maybe I'll take a semester of biochem, even open up my options, right? More. Yeah. Um, but this, this temporary assignment came up and it's something I knew I really wanted to do. I would not have a chance to do it again. So I, I took it yeah. and probably like, I don't know, two or three weeks before I left for Germany, I got my MCAT score back, had all my letters of rectum, had written my entire application. Is this 2021 or two? Two. Okay. So 2022. The application cycle. Okay. So I had looked and saw like, you know, even though COVID has supposedly died down at that point, a lot of schools are still doing virtual interviews. Mm-hmm. So I just said, you know what, I'm going to apply with the worst school list ever. <laughs> and I gambled. I was, I think I was just frustrated. Why, the why the worst, like, I, why the worst school list? Why, why do you say that? Yeah. <laughs> oh man, Dr. Gray, if you were to look at my school list, you would have been like, what are you doing? Girl? No, I wouldn't this have. The worst. Well, yeah, I think the the critiques would have been valid. I knew it at the time. It was a gamble because without physics, it really limited the schools I could apply to. 
No, but that that's um, I wanted to clarify that point, but, right? Because you just need physics by the time you matriculate. But by the time I'd come back from my deployment, I would not like it would be too so late. Factoring that time. in, you wouldn't have been exactly. able to take physics. Exactly. Got exactly. it. Okay. And I knew based off of my timeline it wouldn't be possible. Okay. And the so, issue with my school list was that the schools that don't require prereqs mm-hmm. are ridiculously competitive. Of course. Or yeah. they're like super low yield, right? Yeah. Like Tulane, I think, had a record breaking number of applications this past cycle. Yeah. Um and yeah. So I was I was nervous. I kind of knew the the, the gamble I was taking. Yeah. Would not recommend. It worked out for me this cycle, but <laughs> if I had to go back and do it, don't anyone listening, don't do what I did. Yeah. The stress of that was was unreal. Um and then on top of that, I was interviewing while I was in Europe, you know, so one, two in the morning. Um, yeah. So your school list was mostly predicated on prereqs and do they, uh, do they have any um, based on your, your lack of physics? Do they require it? So it seems like you were very intentional with your list based on that as probably the biggest data point. Um, I think that and then the close second or like right there with it would be schools that valued non-traditional students. And how did you figure that out? Uh, part of it's the average matriculation age. Mm-hmm. So if the average age is 22, 23, I'm not 22 or 23 anymore. Yeah. Um, and then a lot of them will talk about that on their on their website, on their their school um mission and whatnot and what they see. You can also look at the, um, oh man, it's been so long since I've used it, the database on AMCAS. The MSAR, yeah. Yeah, the MSAR, um, and see the composition of the last few accepted classes. Okay, is that where you found the age there? Is that, or was that on websites? so. Some of it is on websites, for sure. Some of them are, because some schools love to to talk about that. Yeah. Our average age is, is 28, and we love non-traditional students. <laughs> and we want you to have all these other experiences. And so yeah. I bought it to it. I was like, that fits me. Yeah. I will pay your secondary application fee. <laughs> Take my money. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You, you had mentioned before we recorded that there were a lot of things that you would do differently going through the process. And obviously, prereq school lists uh, was one of them. What, what else would you have done differently? Um. I think keeping the neuroticism in check and that's hard. I thought that I would have not like a leg up, but because I'm a non-traditional student, not applying out of undergrad, I don't have this pre-med community around me and I'm not really big on Reddit. I honestly, the SDN website is really hard for me to navigate (laughs) even as a programmer. And so I thought I'm not going to get caught up in all of these emotions and Mm -hmm. freak out. No, that happens. It's so easy to happen. And I think ultimately, when you learn more about the med school process and you understand that you could have a really great application, but thousands and thousands right, of students are applying yeah. and admissions committees are made up of humans and someone has a bad day when they read your application, it's part of the process. That's part of life. Um, you know, we're dependent a lot on human interaction and human emotion and just understanding that there are things out of your control you're going to do the best you can. Right? It doesn't say, that doesn't mean apply carelessly. Yep. Care about your application, care about your story and your narrative. But at the same time, there are things that you can't control about the process. Yep. It is what it is, right? 
And it so is. I think I would have saved a lot of stress. <laughs> <laughs> so the uh, a, a lot of non-trads out there, I think overly worry about the fact that they are non-trad and think that being a non-trad hinders them in this process. Now that you're on the other side, you have your acceptance. Do you do you look back and did, did you have those same thoughts about, uh-oh, I'm a non-trad, they're not gonna like that I didn't come out of the womb wearing a stethoscope? Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and was there any evidence to the contrary as you went through this process? Um, absolutely. I was, as we talked about all my different little career fields and experiences, I really thought med schools were going to look at me and be like, how does she know that she actually wants to be a physician now, right? Because she tried programming, she tried this. You know, med school is not something where you really just try out to see if you like. And so I was nervous. And a lot of my experiences don't, at the surface level, don't seem connected. They don't seem very coherent to establish this narrative of why I want to be a physician. So I think a huge part of it is looking at your experiences, seeing them through your own lens, why you made the decisions you made, how the decisions have changed, how you've changed as a person, and creating a cohesive narrative around that. And I think it did, it helped me a lot because in my interviews, there was a lot to talk about. It wasn't just why I want to be a physician. Obviously that question is asked, but how my other experiences are going to to set me up for success to be a physician. Also, I think the MMI is a lot easier <laughs> when you have a wide variety of things to talk about. Yeah. I remember being super freaked out about the MMI. Um, two of the schools that I interviewed with had MMIs mm-hmm. and I thought they were fun yep. um, because I had something else to, to draw upon. And I think that was a huge plus. Yeah, that's, that's awesome. So when you look back uh, to your application, what do you think, if you could point to one thing on your application, one strategy you took, one one thing that you wrote about, one activity you had, do you think there was one thing in your application that you're like, oh, I'm so glad that was there because I think out of all my interviews, it came up or wh- whatever. Like, wh- What's one thing on your application you think is like uh, the best? The best? I think, ironically, I mean... Ugh. At the service level, not so ironically, right? But my EMS time. But I think a lot of people were very intrigued of how did you do almost five years of 911, get your advanced EMT, and know you didn't want to be a physician and still decided to try, you know, other things. And I was able to fall back a lot on like, well, med school is a huge commitment. That not just like a financial commitment, but a time commitment. That's a huge life choice that you're making that you can't passively make. Mm-hmm. And so I think there was a lot of interest of having this thousands and thousands of clinical hours, right? And not immediately pursuing that. Because I think most students, most applicants, you know, get their EMT to have the clinical hours on their um, application. I think just my longer time in EMS, I was able to speak a lot about the system as a whole um, and where I saw some of the deficiencies, the things I liked and how that inspired me with, you know, the rest of my life decisions after that. Yeah. Because you weren't a medic in the army, you had your EMT experience from before, were you doing some EMT work during the application cycle, some some recent stuff to show that you were committed in, in continuing to do this? Mm. So I, when I was doing most of my military training, the last section of my military training, 
I had more free time. Mm-hmm. And so I volunteered at the, the Army ER, which is a crazy experience. So if anyone gets the opportunity to do that, um, <laughs> military medicine is uh, military physicians are, as you probably know, <laughs> um, just very like very forward and willing to teach and like have you do procedures and all these things. And so it was a great experience. But then when I got to um, Korea, I applied to be on the on-base service again, EMS service in the ER as a volunteer. Mm. And just my job as a platoon leader, it did not have the time for it. And then COVID hit. So cannot do clinical. It's like the military is not going to let you. you It's not your primary job. And you can't bring COVID to your coworkers or your soldiers. Yeah. So it was not possible. Um, I tried again in Los Angeles, but at that point, right, that was like the epicenter of COVID. <laughs> and we were at work all the time because the stay-at-home mandates don't apply to federal employees. So that being said, though, as I was sitting for the MCAT, um, I did not have any like direct shadowing time of the position. And so I worked, uh, I applied a lot of different places. I think I like cold called or emailed 30 different clinics outside Seattle, in Seattle. Everyone was like, nope, we don't do that. There's still COVID and tried with the military hospital. They also said no. And then I tried with like smaller military clinics and got pretty lucky a physician that took me on. And I've read somewhere you need 50 hours. So <laughs> I shot it for 50 hours. Yeah. Um, but I shot it up until I, I left for my temporary duty. But okay. that oh. was the most. You probably don't remember this because you do tons of Q and A's. And for anyone listening, if you're not on the Instagram Q and A's, you're making a mistake. <laughs> uh, go to them because it's awesome. Like students ask right other questions that you hadn't thought of. You kind of have a sanity check. But I actually did go on one of your Q and A's, and I was like, "Hey, I have all this clinical experience, but it's been years." Yeah. And you were like, "I remember you told me something along the lines of calm down. Sounds like you have thousands of hours. You're going to be fine. You know, because consistency is important for yeah. sure, especially leading up to the cycle." Um, because EMS for me was almost five years ago. It's been a while since I've had patient care. So you do have to continue to show your interest, but if things are out of your control and you explain that within your application, you talk about the effort that you've put and you try to find, right. Uh, I'm not sure if you're still doing it, but I know at one point you were doing like the virtual shadowing Mm -hmm. hours. Um, I, I did that as well. So, okay. Yeah, there's yeah. roadblocks. You gotta pass them. <laughs> Lot, lots of roadblocks, and and definitely right. If if best case scenario uh, is you have recent and consistent hours, and then for someone like yourself, it's been a while, and here are these other things you've been doing, and not for a lack of trying or or lack of not wanting to maintain some clinical presence. It's just it is what it is. So I think that's that's always the the struggle with giving kind of broad advice is. Yes, consistency and recency, I think, are a number one. But that doesn't mean you have to, depending on your specific situation. And would I, would I recommend everyone, if they can't get recent and consistent clinical experience or shadowing, should they delay their application based on all these other variables, right? It's, it's impossible to give that sort of advice. Um, and for you, it worked out. So it's, it's yeah. definitely not best case scenario, but it worked out for you at the end of the day, which I think is, is great and just shows, right? There's, oh. there's no perfect way to do this. No, absolutely not. Um, just to add on to your point about general advice, I think that's something I learned throughout the 
the application cycle is you're going to get advice from a lot of different people. And it's important to take that advice within like the frame of reference of your life and what you have going on and what you've done. Mm-hmm. I remember I had a coworker offer to look at like one of my secondary applications and he returned it and was like, you have to say you wanted to be a physician ever since you were 12 years <laughs> old. And this is your life's mission. And I was like, at the time I was like, Oh my God, maybe he's right. You know, but if you look at my experiences, that's obviously not the case. My actions have not dictated that yeah. whatsoever. So why would you say that? Um, that's not who you are. Exactly. Yeah. Thank you for not taking that advice. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so you ended up um, doing an MD, MPH. At, at mm-hmm. what point of the process, this comes up all the time for students who are like, how do I do MD, MPH? At, at what point of the process did you declare that you were doing this MPH and what did that look like uh, just kind of technically? So the, from my understanding, at least the schools I apply to, the majority of them, you have to have finished your first year of med school or it'll be almost done. And then you can apply for an MPH or an MBA. Mm-hmm. Uh, the school I'm at, you apply as part of like your primary and secondary application. And so when I got the secondary application, I clicked the box and the MPH and I had to do a personal statement specifically for that. And then I had an interview specifically for that as well. Okay. And it was reliant on you being accepted to the MD program to be considered for the MPH. Okay. What was the, do you remember the, the prompt for the MD MPH personal statement? Is it just generic? Uh, Why do you want to do this? I remember looking at it <laughs> and thinking, I do not want to write another personal statement. <laughs> <laughs> I just spent like hours and hours, right? For, or, you know, I mean, at that point, months on my actual and um, med school application personal statement. So, yeah. Yeah. Part of it was why, why an MPH and what are you going to do with it as a physician? Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. And so, okay. So looking back at your whole journey, what do you, what do you think was the biggest mistake you made? Biggest mistake. I think maybe not reaching out to more people for help. I didn't really know a lot of physicians. I knew some medical directors, but that time in EMS had been so long ago. And I think if I had reached out, because you have the ability to make your own community, even if it feels like you don't. And you also have the ability to filter your community. To say, maybe Reddit's not the best place for my mental health yep. um, or for application uh, advice, Yep. right? So I, I got really lucky. I met another student um, during my like do-it-yourself post-bac who was also a non-traditional career changer and was planning on applying the cycle after my cycle and was like really interested in the, the secondary essay process. And so she helped proofread a lot of my, my stuff. But that's a lot to ask from one person. Yeah. <laughs> but anyone's in the middle of their secondaries. Um, well, probably not yet. It's too early. Oh, no, they're, they're in them. <laughs> oh, yeah. They're in them. Oh, wow. yeah. Um, having someone to look at that for a sanity check mm-hmm. for not someone to tell you what your narrative or your story is. But sometimes when you, I think you know your narrative and your story really well, when you put it on paper, you might understand it. Someone else might not understand it. It's easy to make assumptions, I think, while you're writing that your reader is going to know exactly what you're talking about or what you're feeling. And so I think, you know, I got lucky that I, I had someone, but it would have been 
better to create that own community. I mean, there's a lot of ways to do that. LinkedIn, reaching out to other people. You know, I don't come from a family of physicians. I don't really know anyone in the medical field apart from EMS, but you have to put yourself out there. Yeah. As nerve wrecking as like cold calling and cold emailing is, <laughs> yeah. it's not pleasant. But. You can hang out in the hour hangout, our, our pre-med hangout on Facebook. Uh, it's got mm-hmm. 19,000 plus amazing students in there. So it's a, a great place for people to come, come join uh, in the conversation. Thinking about the fact that you're in a position now where you're talking to the students listening. You used to be a student listening. Thinking about being in your your old shoes again, if you could give some encouragement, some last minute wisdom for those on their journey, doubting themselves along the way, what, what would you impart on those listening right now? I would say, <laughs> I'm sure it comes up almost every episode of the pre-med years or on different posts or it comes up in the books um, that you have. And it sounds super corny and super not, real or maybe fake, but like staying true to who you are is important. And knowing who you are is really important Um, because it's going to come across if you are ingenuine, especially if you don't have the activities or the experiences to back that up. And I remember listening to that advice from other students and kind of rolling my eyes and being like, okay, be who you are. That's super corny. You know, they told me that in kindergarten. But it's, it is real. Um, and I think it was a huge point that came across in, in my interviews as well. All right. So there you have it. Gargana sharing her story of being a non-traditional student from programming to EM, or EMS first and then programming and military and really understanding what got her to really realize that she wanted to go to medical school and be a Physician, I hope this was helpful for you. I hope this gave you some inspiration that as a non-traditional student, you as well can do it. And don't forget to check out our other podcast, the Old Pre-Meds Podcast, which is specifically there for you as a non-traditional student. Hope you have a great week. We'll see you next time here on The Pre-Med Years. This is MedEd Media.